millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So, are we making life difficult for ourselves for no good reason? That's a question we ask today on the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. And the reason I ask this is because we're seeing students rack up massive debts to pay their tuition fees, with interest rates in the UK on those fees way higher than the rate of inflation, meaning young people have got less money to spend on houses, or more importantly, less money buying stuff that might actually help the economy grow. And now we're limiting public sector workers to a 1% per annum pay increase, again reducing their spending power, all supposedly to help balance the budget. So we can't afford to pay university fees out of the public purse. We can't afford to pay nurses and teachers more money because there isn't enough money in the budget, in the public coffers. How many times have we heard that argument? Well, regular listeners to this podcast and followers of the work of Steve Keen know that the answer is to create money. Governments could do that through their central banks. Uh, or don't create the money, just run a budget deficit. Maybe that's not as bad as it sounds. So let's look at both of those options with Professor Steve Keen and try and understand how governments and the central bank works with money. So, Steve, I mean, the government needs money, so it issues bonds, and the central bank can buy them, and they can be bought by the private sector, or central banks can buy them with the money Mm -hmm. it creates, and that's quantitative easing. That's what we call QE. Uh, That's it in a nutshell, isn't it? Uh, it's it, I mean, very, very long, just uh, convoluted and roundabout way. That's what they do. And they, they could uh, quite easily just say, OK, we're going to buy the bonds off you and we issue the money in return. Um, so like the absolute simplest way to, to consider this is that the uh, Treasury works out it's going to have a excess of spending over taxation of, say, a billion pounds. Uh, uh, next year. So it issues bonds worth a billion pounds and the central bank says, here's a billion pounds and we've got the bonds. Right. And what happens and, and that is all. That is all there is to it. And now, once it, what the, the government then treasury then has a billion pounds in addition to what it expects to get from tax revenue. You beauty, we can go and spend it. Right, but, bond, but frankly, bonds. Are, that's a simple. Yeah. That's, that's a simple yeah, way. Sorry. But bonds are issued for a period of time, aren't they? So I mean, normally like a ten, five, ten, or or thirty year yeah. bond, and you'd expect at the end of that. Uh, that uh, the government is going to have to pay you back for those bonds, as yeah. well as paying you interest uh, in the meantime. We, yeah. In which case, uh, what it does then at that stage, it uh, uh, issues the call to the uh, central bank to issue it the amount of money that it needs to repay the bonds that it's turning over. It basically turns over these debts all the time. And so long as in in the realm in which the um, the government's money operates, so long as people accept that money within that realm, uh, it can get away with it. And this is um, this is the point which is both uh, the liberating element of a government and the element which uh, economists have always wanted to completely constrain because they see leading directly to pork barrelling. Um, and and mm. this, this is where the whole issue of I mean, it, it, we, we should talk about the actual, uh, you know, what are the actual steps that take place in the real world, because that's the idealised what could happen. But well, yeah, tell me, so tell me what really was, happens. Yeah. OK. Uh, the basic story is the government, first of all, works out what it and this is through the Treasury, uh, works out what its spending plans are for the year, what its estimates of tax revenue 
based on the current tax laws are, and that then will lead to an estimate of whether it's going to be in surplus or in deficit. Now, I'll leave the issue of whether it should be or it shouldn't be in one or the other states later in the conversation, but that's what they first of all do. Let's say that they, let's work with a more realistic figure of, say, you know, £100 billion of spending above what their tax revenue is expected to be. Then they issue £100 billion worth of bonds, and what they'll do in doing that as well is they'll try to time the maturity of the bonds to the expenditures that they're planning as well, which is why they issue 5, 10, 25-year bonds and things like that. Uh, so when they issue the bonds, there's then a vote in Parliament to approve the spending plans of the government. And if that plan is passed, then from that point on, the central bank regards the Treasury as having the money it needs to spend. It doesn't have to actually sell the bonds. Uh, it just it simply gets credited with that amount in its account. And then I'm not actually sure. It varies from country to country as to actually handles the, the bond issuings and sales. It's normally the central banks that do that. So they'll then have an auction. And you may have noticed, uh, being another uh, sort of honorary Aussie, you may have noticed that Australia had a re- recent bond issue uh, of the same sort of story in the government estimating its spending exceeding its tax revenues and issuing bonds to a certain value. value now these are the bonds to the value of, I think it was 800 million, um, I don't think it was 800 billion, it was 800 million Australian dollars, and they're all bought by one company. We don't know who they are, but one company bought them. So this this the story of the process is, first of all, Treasury works out what its uh, planned expenditure above tax revenue is going to be, issues bonds to that value, Parliament votes on the bonds, uh, the, on, on the uh, the uh, Treasury bill. As it's approved, the Treasury is then treated as having that money and it then spends. On the other side, with the bonds to sell, the central bank then issues those bonds, has a bond auction, and the, the purchases of those bonds are almost always private institutions from the financial sector. So they will have money in their accounts and they will then buy those bonds. So that what they're doing, they're swapping money, which is not earning the many interest uh, payments or any many dividend payments, they swap that money for government bonds, which are giving them a low but very, very guaranteed return, whereas everything else they buy, maybe the company might fold and so on. So private institutions like superannuation firms, pension companies, insurance companies all want to have a set of assets which they just know are going to give a set return. And that's what the, the function of government bonds is for them. Now, there has... As far as I'm aware, I, I would actually like to have somebody do the history of, of um, economic history in this. I don't think there's ever been a bond issue that hasn't been fully subscribed. Right. Because it's such a safe bet. It's such a safe bet. They need them in their portfolio. And so long as, I mean, you'd need the government to issuing hundreds, hundreds of tens of hundreds of billions of dollars worth of bonds before you'd ever get to the possibility of, of exhausting the money that's sitting in the uh, accounts of the pension funds and, and insurance companies and so on that they want to allocate for um, for income earning rather than non-income earning assets. Now, if they if they if there ever was the case that there wasn't a fully subscribed bond issue, then in effect the central bank is operating as a as a guaranteed underwriter. So if you know in the commercial world, if you have a, a commercial uh, inst- entity like you know Tesla, let's say, um, issuing bonds, then what it will do is well. Well, we will arrange underwriting of those bonds before the issue goes out so that they don't actually get the revenue from the public. The underwriter uh, then takes up the extra slack. And, of course, you've got to pay a fee for the underwriter. It's a bit like – it's similar to insurance. You you hope it doesn't happen. If it does happen, you have a, a, um, a, a alternative – 
And that's fundamentally the role of the central bank. So in that sense, there is no problem about the government financing expenditure. And uh, we, we can get – we, 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 let's move on from that point to that other points but the, the ultimate point too of course is no problem with them rolling it over either so but in that scenario you're describing though i mean that's there's no money created there is there i mean as you say that the well, central bank is the central bank is acting as an underwriter but it's 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 issuing bonds those bonds are being bought by somebody with money that's already in existence yeah that's true um so it's only the extent that the central bank actually buys uh buys bonds off the private sector which it's doing all the time through what they call open market operations. So uh, there's, there's, a, there's a, I'd actually, I've never actually been to see one, the Reserve Bank of Australia. It wasn't all that friendly towards me back in Australia. They never invited me to see the opera, operating side of or any other side of the central bank. Uh, bank of England, a different story. I might actually ask if I can go in and see the, the bond buying desk, but they're regularly buying and, and in, in terms of the, it's just a continuous arrangement of buying and selling the repo agreements, as they call them, repurchase. You you buy bonds with an agreement to pay to sell them back at a later stage. And if the if the central bank is on the majority buy side, then when it's doing it, that is creating money. But if you think this is one thing I, I don't think is actually well enough thought about by some of my colleagues in um, monetarily aware economics, let's say, and that is that. In the situation where the central bank sells all the bonds to the financial sector and the treasury then spends the money that's been you know, transferred, what you've got is a transfer of money from the financial sector to the real economy. Mm. Okay, which is not a bad idea. Yeah, okay, yeah. Uh, that's that's when it, when 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 the government actually issues bonds in the majority, it's not creating money, but it's transferring money out of the financial sector because the financial is buying the bonds, and then the treasury, when it spends, it spends an equivalent amount of money, hopefully on things like nurses and fire stations. Now, if you go in the opposite direction, if the government actually tries to run a surplus, then what it's doing is it's rather than rather than trying to if it actually did get to the stage, which it's virtually impossible for it to get there, but this is, let's say they actually did get there. What they're doing is they're taking money out of the real economy and giving it to the finance sector. So this is, so what you're describing there is the normal way of doing business for governments. So they have to, they've, they've, mm-hmm. they've, they sell these bonds because they've got to, because they've got a shortfall in their budget. The private sector somehow... Well, let's, let's be careful now that... Let's, say, hey, let's, let's use the right language here. They, they should be saying this, they're actually creating money. Uh, or they're trying to inject money into the real economy. <laughs> that's, right. That's, but it's money that already it's, exists. It's, it's, as you say, it's, it's not a shortfall. You, in that scenario, you and I have shortfalls. Yeah, yeah. Right, yeah, that's right, all the time. But, um, but I mean, they're not, but <laughs> it's not, it, it's not, I mean, it, it, that is different. What you've described is different to a situation where the bank, uh, where the government says, oh my goodness, we're 100 billion under, uh, we need to issue bonds. The central bank says, well, we can issue bonds, but no one's going to buy them. So I tell you what, uh, we'll buy them ourselves. I mean, it, they are ultimately being bought by. By uh, people in the private sector, which money with with money that already exists, and as you say, it's money that uh, might be sitting in financial institutions, which finds itself being spent on government projects, perhaps. Yeah, and there's a better way of using that money than having it sitting in the finance sector. And if, of course, we, we, people think they're being responsible by saying let's run a surplus. What that surplus actually amounts to is transferring money from the physical economy to the to the paper economy. To the financial sector, and that's the last bloody place we need it right now, frankly. Uh, yep. So, so the whole idea of this being an objective to run a surplus is saying it's an objective to take money out of the real system and put it into financial speculation. What a great use of money! 
<laughs> right, but but that's what's happening now. There's nothing uh, unconventional yeah. about that approach. What's the, the mm. what's the term monetary financing then, or monetizing debt, which is um, well, the, in, which, in, yeah. which is forbidden in, 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 that, in many yeah. countries? It's forbidden directly, but it's allowed indirectly because if you say that the government uh, cannot create money to finance its investment, which is the usual crap that's been built into uh, uh, the legal procedures of central banks around the world by. A, a, a lawyers being advised by economists that this is a really, really bad thing we shouldn't let them do. Um, this, if the, if the central bank, having issued all those bonds and sold them to the financial sector, then buys some of those bonds back in, then there's effectively net money creation because the, the actual act of selling the bonds in the first instance ends up being a transfer of money from the financial side of the economy to the real side if the central bank then buys those bonds back and by by, by the way individuals can end up buying the bonds i it was is part of a um, <laughs> decision not to invest in the property market because i refused to write a bubble back with my first wife back in the uh, mid-1990s i actually bought two hundred thousand dollars worth of queensland government bonds at the time All right just think how much uh, that has to, just, i, I don't want to rub it in steve but just imagine how much that has to be worth now <laughs> I should have written the bubble. I have no argument with that. It's just that my bloody moral sense got in the way and I refused to do it um, because I saw the bubble starting more further than anybody else did, usual sort of story. Mm. Um, yeah, but anyway, that, that, that um, mechanism for money creation is there all the time. And, but if you think about it, most of that money, when it's created by the central bank, when, it's by, when it sells the bonds back to the um, – so it sells the bonds back to the private sector – um, it's, it's taking cash out. When it buys the bonds, it's putting cash back in again. Um, so there can be net money creation, but when they do the net money creation, most of that money creation is going to start in the financial sector. Right. So central banks don't like this idea that they are going to have to buy bonds back again because it's adding it's adding money, and potentially that's what... Well, they had to- no, they're happy to do it at all times. So just that they normally do it in the repo agreements, where they try pretty much to remain like balanced. Just to trying to what they're trying to do with that is maintain the interest rate they've set. So if they see what, what the repo, uh, repo, the repurchase um, activities they get involved in, are mainly because if they see trends in the in the interest rate that's been charged between banks uh, rising or falling, then they all buy. They will sell or buy in that situation to try to keep the interest rate within the range they've set in their open market operation decisions. That's if you think about the name of the what's the name of the body in the um, uh, Federal Reserve that um, sets interest rates? It's the FOMC, Federal Open, yeah, Federal Uh, Open Open Market. Open Market, but it's actually it's actually. Yeah, it's it's yeah. If it's the one that's actually with the word "open," there is because it's actually part of the uh, the open what they call open market open market operations (OMOs). Uh, that's where the repurchase agreements are agreeing. So once they set the interest rate, that then is telling their own staff what your target should be for buying and selling bonds to try to maintain the interest rate we've just set. But on top of that, they can also decide to do things like QE, which add to the amount of money they're buying over and above. Uh, the bonds they're buying over and above the amount they decided to do to maintain the interest rate. Right. So with QE, that is when they are expanding the money supply because they are buying back those bonds. But if the government, if the government does that a lot, or the central bank does that a lot, the, the currency is is expanded, then the value of bonds is going to be less, isn't it? I mean, it's it's it, it costs the same in currency, but it's going to be worth less in real time, in real terms, if you keep on doing this. Well, what it actually does, if you buy, if you're if you're buying those bonds all the time, you're driving 
up the bond prices and therefore driving down the bond yields. yields yeah. And that's one of the major targets of QE. They, they say they want to keep interest rates as low as they can, not just uh, uh, at the short end of the spectrum, which is where they've got the most immediate impact, but across the long run, 30-year 30, 30 bonds and things like that as well. So it's a, a massive uh, buying campaign with the specific objective of driving down the, what they call the yield curve, the interest rate charge given the age of the bond, right across the spectrum. And their belief was that by doing that, they'd actually therefore cause was more economic activity because according to the childish models that dominate most central banks, uh, the main determinant of investment is the interest rate. Of course, the real main determinant of investment is the profit rate. Mm. And you can't do much to vary the uh, profit rate by changing the interest rate. Right. But if you are driving those yields down, if you are getting less, um, then people are going to stop buying those bonds, aren't they? They're going to say, well, you know, no. the yield's just too low on this now. No. <laughs> you know that the Japanese issued a bond with negative yield recently, which is fully subscribed? Right. Uh, because I mean, this is the whole thing about bond vigilantes. I mean, the only bond vigilantes in any sense that actually operate are ones which are going to try to plunder a country that issues bonds that's not in its own currency. Because then they're in a hiding to nothing to lose, given the amount of money that uh, can be generated by these uh, institutions. They're themselves by borrowing money and levering up their own position by borrowing money from private banks, I might add. That's a major part of how they can actually outdo anything that... The government can do but if the government issues bonds not in its own currency then it's vulnerable uh the bond vigilantes can come into play but if it's issuing in its own currency the bond vigilantes are on a hiding nothing to lose even if the government's issuing bonds with zero or even negative yield so hang on i'm, I'm confused on this so that, let's go back to your two hundred thousand dollars that you spent on on government bonds yeah. uh, if if you were not getting any if, if they were giving you very little yield in other words for that, that mm-hmm. amount of money all you're going to get back at the end of the uh, of the term of those of those bonds is the the two hundred thousand dollars that you put in and in the interim you're going to mm-hmm. get, a, get a very low yield you would be better off using mm-hmm. that money in a myriad of other ways wouldn't you including just sticking it in a savings account yeah uh, that's that's potentially the case for individuals um, and it's it's also feasible for large corporations to make that decision but they normally end up saying let's just park it in bonds I mean, it, it, all the people talk about this terrible worry of this. Of this I mean, if you, if bond vigilantes brings up the image of the Wild West of America and, you know, you're driving along in your stagecoach and suddenly you're surrounded by a bunch of guys with uh, Colt 45s. Uh, there's plenty of historical instances of that. Give me one historical incident of a country copying that when it's issuing bonds in its own currency. They just end up being purchased because of the needs of the financial sector to have something which anchors their overall spectrum of investments. The taking positions which are risky in other elements, they might be putting you know, 20% into share markets and 40% into property and so much into overseas markets as well. They want something which is anchored. And in that sense, even a, a, almost a, a zero or negative yield, uh, in, in some cases when they, when they put these bonds out, they've been so oversubscribed, particularly in Japan on occasion, that the interest rate ends up being negative. Which is crazy, but that's the needs of the finance sector. So when we talk about government debt, you know, and we, uh, you know, you normally hear that, yes, we, you know, the government's got a massive debt and uh, we've got this mm. horrendous figure of interest that's being paid on it, uh, which, of course, gets everyone astonished. You know, this, this, this fantastically large number, which is used by uh, conservatives to, to qualify the need for controls on spending and austerity. That interest that mm. they're talking about is the payouts that are being made on bonds that are issued to the private sector, fundamentally. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, and those are those are paid in exactly the same way that the uh, central bank paid for the bonds it bought under QE, as well as it can service the bonds it buys under QE or anything else, just by making an entry in the bank account of the co- company that owns the owns the bonds. 
Right, so it's... It's it, accounting. Right, it, yeah, oh, for sure. Even, and, and, I mean, I, I'm afraid, I hate to say this, I hate to say this, Phil, but I think there's no danger of us running out of accountants. <laughs> well, well, if there is, well automated. Uh, so problem solved. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, easily fixed. But uh, so if you sell those bonds, though, to, to you, know, you made this point that if you sell them to somebody who's uh, not in your is in a foreign currency, so you so issue bonds and mm. they get bought by the Americans, for for example, uh, and mm. it, and it's a UK government. If it's if it's if they were bought in uh, in, in pounds, then that's that's easy. You make the point that you know when you need to repay, you just issue more bonds to repay the bonds mm. that you've uh, that have reached maturity. If you've if somebody's bought them in, uh, in in US dollars, why is that different? What how does that com- complicate oh, well, things? In that case, you in that case you you can run out of US dollars. Uh, the, 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 the analogy I want people to get their heads around is that governments and banks, like money factories, when they have their own currency. Uh, what people think about is the money warehouses. That's not true. But they are money warehouses when it comes to having money from other countries. You can only get that money from other countries uh, by either borrowing that money or by selling sufficient goods of your own that you get a, resi- a residue of the money of this overseas country back in your own coffers. And all central banks try to have a portfolio of money from other countries, particularly the United States dollar, of course, but also they'll have you know, holdings of euros, holdings of renminbi to some extent, uh, any, any, Swiss, Swiss francs, anything which is relatively liquid and often coming from a surplus generating trade surplus generating nation as well so but if, you, if you're a trade deficit nation and the UK is classically a trade deficit nation now having des- having destroyed its manufacturing sector in the last uh, 25 years uh, with that trade deficit you are always finding yourself having to buy or borrow US dollars from overseas so that you can continue buying it because if you're running a trade deficit of say 5% of GDP and that's pretty much the scale the UK is at or heading towards then every year you've got to you've got to generate five percent worth of GDP of US dollars. Now you can do that in several ways. Your customers will be saying, "I want to buy that Mercedes," so they need euros. Um, so when they make the purchase uh, in pounds, that gets presented by the uh, you know Mercedes Benz company to the central bank, and they get euros back. Uh, you've got to as a you've the, the British banks effectively have to be buying or borrowing those funds from overseas at all times, and they can do that by issuing bonds denominated in a foreign currency or by um, selling local assets and getting foreign currency that way. But the central bank itself, which is ends up being where this stuff is stored temporarily, can literally run out of American dollars. So if you have um, the situation where, where you know, whatever, whatever mechanism that comes about by a British entity has issued bonds in a foreign currency um, – and that's a British government entity. If they start running out of those dollars, they're in a hiding to nothing to be screwed by the by the international speculators saying it's happening. Let's drive it down further and force them to devalue the currency, which is frankly what Soros did all those years ago. So you would only sell as much as you needed to uh, to foreign investors, then presumably you'd you'd be your your preference is always going to be let's sell to domestic investors because it's in our own currency, but we need to sell some overseas because we need that we need to see that foreign currency coming into the country. No, well, you've got the you've got the trade deficit determines you need for the foreign currency, and if you're running a sustained trade deficit, which the UK is, then you're always going to be issuing uh, bonds uh, in in a foreign currency to get that foreign currency back, or you're going to be selling domestic assets to get that foreign currency that way, and that's to me right. that's why I, I think the most important deficit by far is the trade and current account deficit, not the bloody government deficit. <laughs> 
Right. Well, let's look. Okay, got it. I'm st- this is starting to make sense bit by bit. I'm glad we're having this conversation. <laughs> um, the, um, so let's look at uh, government deficit then, because um, it's seen as a bad thing. Uh, if you're issuing bonds and um, uh, and it's being sold on through the private sector, that's doing nothing to obviously re- remove that. That still appears as on the budget item as the government running at a deficit. If you mm. do it year on year, that deficit is widening. Uh, I think your thinking is uh, that's the way it would appear, isn't it? In, in in terms of on paper, because you're not actually creating new money unless the unless the central bank is buying it back. If if they're not, mm. and they're selling it to the private sector. It still appears as government debt ultimately. But then your uh, your point is, who cares? Yeah, effectively, because the government's never going to run out of the capacity to create its own currency, and so it, it doesn't. And when it services it again, it's all accounting entries. It doesn't require. Um, you know, selling stuff overseas to get the get the get the money back. It's all within the. Um, it doesn't require taxing the future either. This is the other thing. There's no impossible burden in the future. And one thing I'm going to be, uh, when I start putting together my magnum opus on this whole topic, one thing I'll be starting with a little example of a, you know, the Tom, Dick and Harry, Harry world, Tom, Dick and Harry, uh, where they rapidly learn that uh, saving money is a bad idea. And then they decide to institute a government. I think I'm going to go for a banking system first before they bring in a government sector first. But... When they do it, what they find is they only have a banking sector, then the, the net equity is always zero because if a bank gives you a loan, you get an equal asset and liability out of that. You get an asset of the money they've given you, an identical liability, the debt that you now owe the banking sector. And because the, the banking sector has to operate with positive equity, any, any private bank that has negative equity is bankrupt. Uh, so a banking sector has to have positive equity. By definition, therefore, if you have an only private uh, banking sector system, then the equity of the remainder of the economy is negative. Now, that means firms in the aggregate, households in the aggregate have negative equity, meaning their, their liabilities exceed their assets. Now, if you have the private sector deciding, oh, that's terrible, let's try to get the stage where they're back in balance again, it's a spiral to zero. The only way you can have, and this is, I think it's poorly explained by the modern theory crowd, which is why I'm elaborating a bit here on this point. Uh, the only way you can have net, uh, net positive assets is if the government spends more than it gets back in taxation, because when the government spends on you, it does not give you a matching liability. Okay? This is the difference. Yeah. Uh, if, if, okay. And that means that you get money, which is an asset to you, but not a liability to you. So in that sense, that enables the private sector to end up with net positive assets only if the government is is creating money by spending more than it gets back in taxation. Right. And the only time that is ever happening is when the government is running a deficit or when the government creates extra money through quantitative right. easing. And then, when the, and, then, and then that expands the money supply as well as redirecting money initially in the first instance from the financial sector to the uh, real economy. And that is something a government would want to see, and we'll come to the roles of the government, the Treasury versus the central bank in a moment, because it seems to me maybe it's a bit of a nonsense that they're separated. Mm-hmm. But but it, but it, if, uh, I mean, that that is another tool a government might want to use, mightn't it? It might say, well, look, we you know, as you incur more debt, uh, you know, you've issued more bonds, but then perhaps you'd want to see the money supply expand to try and devalue some of that debt. Effectively, yeah. I mean, there's, there's ways in which um, it, it is just the scale of government debt compared to the economy uh, is nowhere near the issue that's made up by mainstream economists. Like there's a guy named John Hurthink, his name is some 
some mainstream economist who continues hitting me with bloody tweets all the time uh, with his infinite wisdom out of a textbook on um, on economics um, annoys the hell out of me, frankly. Um, but this this paranoia about the level of debt compared to the uh, the, the economy itself. Um, if you look back at the historical record, the level of government debt has been as high as three point five times GDP during the Napoleonic War period. And, uh, and uh, it's it's is just an accounting operation. Right. Well, uh, look, people are going to get scared if it just keeps on going up and going up and going up. I mean, does it reach a point where it matters? Yeah. Well, let's look at Japan on that front. Japan began with a private debt, with the government debt ratio of about 40% of GDP before its economic crisis hit. It's new now 250% of GDP. Uh, government, private, they've totally ignored private debt, which was actually what triggered the whole crisis. But they've just continued spending that amount of money and accumulating that amount of debt. Everybody's saying next year the vigilante is going to strike. They're never going to strike in Japan for the simple reason Japan runs a trade surplus. It's, it's never going to have the problem of running out of the foreign currency. Therefore, it doesn't need to issue bonds and anything other, but it's other than its own currency, which it has the infinite capacity to do given the existence of computers. Or even if you're giving the interest of paper, paper uh, a double-entry book ruled up taper. That's all it takes. Right. They, so, could do, they could do it because they've got Excel, is basically what you're saying, isn't it? Uh, yeah. Or, or <laughs> and if they could even use it to, you know, we, let's go down at the level of, um, they could even be doing, doing a, a colouring in book. But I, I am a critic of, of getting that, letting that get out of control at the same time, uh, because it's often out of control because you haven't addressed the actual original problem, which is the private debt overhang. Right. So, so fo- the focus of governments, though, primarily, and we've talked about this before, should be, yes, how do we get uh, a, 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 our trade deficit down? How do we get uh, to a trade surplus mm. rather than focusing on how do we get government debt down? Absolutely. They've just got the wrong thing in their attention span. And then when you see the stuff that Theresa May is going on with right now, I would be very happy to come and advise the Conservative Party on this, by the way, because I'm, I mean, I'm not partisan in any sense to political parties. Uh, it's easy to advise the Labor Party on this, but I'd be happy to invite the Conservatives because if they continue spouting this crap, uh, they're never going to. Uh, now that it's been 40 years of this, stuff, of, you know, of this attempt to get to government surpluses, and it's now been discredited by experience, if not by knowledge, in the UK, the Conservatives are never going to get uh, back in power again if they keep this line up. Which is, my argument is a bit, a bit like Maggie Thatcher's when her advisers were first asked whether they'd be, are they were, were they happy that they now had a Conservative Party in power. One of them replied, "No, I'll only be happy when I've got two Conservative parties vying for power." Now, from my point of view, I'd like to have two. Parties Parties who actually understand money creation by buying for power. Right. Although we, I mean, we started uh, by uh, talking about money creation, but I mean, it could just as easily be government debt, couldn't it? Although I guess government debt, if the government is getting into debt uh, and that debt is increasing, then yeah. in effect, that is uh, more money, isn't it? Because that's that's money that's yeah, being spent. Could, it's just appearing yeah. as a negative figure on the uh, on the government spreadsheet. Yeah, you could you could effectively um, rename those government debt bonds to go to government shares and just say the shares with a guaranteed yield. Uh, because what they all are really are fundamentally is a, is a record of government's net money creation over time. So the, it strikes. So there's three instruments, aren't there, that can work together to control government spending and, and private spending as well, mm-hmm. and, and, in, and inflation that can be a subsequence of you know doing too much of it. There's mm-hmm. uh, there's money that's created um, that can cause that inflation. Um, I, I, there's interest rates that you know we, we can control spending, which can slow down inflation. 
and there's tax, which we discussed last time, which can also control spending mm. and help slow down inflation. So how can all of this be done? You know, we've talked about the, the, the nuances as well as, as to whether you create money or whether you just, uh, you, you just increase the level of government debt. All of this is being done by the Treasury and by the central bank working in unison, but they don't work in unison. They're separate. They're, they're acting independently. So if we got all, all of this wrong, if these are all instruments that are supposed to work together, haven't we got the system wrong? Yes, we have. <laughs> this is what's so frustrating to people like myself and Stephanie Kelton and so on sitting on the outside watching all the stuff being done by governments. Once you understand the mechanics, then a whole lot of what are seen as limitations disappear. And it's a similar sort of thing. That's why I so much stick to the analogy of Ptolemaic versus Copernican astronomy for economics. Once you realize that it's not a case of the Earth, the Sun orbiting the Earth, but the Earth orbiting the Sun, the whole perspective on the functioning of the system changes. And we're still stuck with a perspective in economics, which might as well argue that the Earth is the center of the universe uh, in, in relative to how we, much we understand about the, uh, the uh, economy itself. All right. Beautiful stuff. Appreciate uh, explaining it to us all, Steve. It makes a bit more sense now. I'm glad we had this half hour. Ditto. And coming up soon on the Debunking Economics podcast, post-Keynesian economics. What is it really? We'll get all that, uh, that explained. And now there's uh, two of us working in most households. Are we actually any better off? This is one that's going to upset the women's lib movement. Have they forced us all to work more for less? That's coming up on the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. Back again soon. 